and welcome to City Breaks Bath, Episode 7, Jane Austen's Bath. You've probably been getting little glimpses of Jane Austen from previous episodes when we talked about taking the waters in Bath or the Georgian architecture, but I do think she deserves an episode all to herself, and this is it. She must surely be the city's best-known resident, and her novels are surely the number one place from which most people get the information that they know about Regency Bath, or Bath in its absolute heyday. You may know that she's famed for her irony, and so it is quite ironic to be able to state that although she's so closely linked to the city of Bath, she didn't in fact like it all that much herself. She put quite a lot of that into her novels, and she expressed it herself, perhaps when letter-writing to her sister. We know, for example, that one day, looking down on the city from Kingsdown, on one of her walks up one of the surrounding hills and out of the city centre, she's known to have looked down and commented that what she could see was, quote, all vapour, shadow, smoke and confusion. So she's inextricably connected with the city, and I'm hoping in this episode to explain all the different ways in which that's the case. So I think we'll start with a little bit of biography of Jane, but focusing particularly on the periods of her life when she had connections with Bath. I'd like to look at Bath in her work, what some of her characters have to say about it, and I'd like to devote the last section to somewhere in Bath which you could visit, and that's the Jane Austen Centre, where you can spend an informative morning or afternoon finding out all about Jane and her connection to the city. And I certainly intend to talk about that a little bit, but I'd also particularly like to highlight their website, which is an absolute mine of information on Bath on Jane Austen, and in all the many, many ways in which the two are connected. Anyway, more of that a bit later. Let's start at the beginning with 1775, the year in which Jane was born in the Hampshire village of Steventon, where her father was a rector, and where she spent the first 25 years of her life very happily. So happily, in fact, that when her father retired and announced that he had decided to uproot the whole family to Bath, it's said that Jane fainted when she heard the news. So unkeen was she to leave her country home and set off to the big city. Even by that point, she did in fact know Bath. We know that she'd been to stay there at least twice. There were a lot of Austin children, and Dad was a rector, so they weren't terribly well off. But fortunately, they had some relatives who were much better off, and on more than one occasion, Jane was invited by them to go and spend a few weeks in Bath, get to know it, meet new people, and I dare say perhaps in her family's mind at least, perhaps meet a husband too. We know, for example, that she was there in 1797, staying with her uncle and aunt, the Lee Perrots, at number one, the Paragon. Her uncle James was her mother's older brother. He and his wife had no children. They were quite wealthy. They tended to spend their winters in Bath enjoying all the various entertainments that were on offer there, and being happy to have their nieces, Jane and Cassandra, to come and stay with them for a few weeks at a time, so that they too could mingle in society and see a little something of the world other than the Hampshire village where they lived. We know that Jane was there again in 1799, staying this time with her older brother, who was the wealthiest member of their family, in a house in Queen Square. Two years after that, in 1801, was the date when she and her parents moved, 
took a house in Bath at 4 Sydney Place, so at the Holborn Museum end of Great Pontley Street, and they were there for several years. After the death of her father, Jane and her mother lived at various other addresses in Bath. They lived, for example, in Gay Street, which is the road which joins the Royal Circus to Queen Square. It's also the road, actually, that the Jane Austen Centre is in. And in 1806, they lived briefly in Trim Street. That was the summer before they left Bath for good, moving to Clifton in Bristol and to Southampton, doing their best, really, to find somewhere where, as two single women not supported by a husband or a father, they would be able to afford to live. And in the end, they were able to move back to Hampshire because Jane's wealthy brother provided a house for them. Jane lived in Hampshire for the rest of her life, dying in Winchester in 1817. You very much get the feeling from her letters that the Bath interlude wasn't the happiest period of her life, and in fact we do know that when they left, she wrote a letter to her sister Cassandra commenting that she had left with, quote, what happy feelings of escape. However, I certainly don't want to give the impression that nothing in Bath was to Jane's taste, because we also know from her letters that she did join in with and enjoy quite a lot of the various things that were on offer there. She makes references to going out to breakfast in public. We know that she went to concerts and sometimes to the theatre. She saw a fireworks display in Sydney Gardens. She attended balls at both the upper and lower assembly rooms. And she was fond of walking, particularly getting out of town a little bit. For example, a favourite walk was going up Beach and Cliff, from where there's a lovely view down on the city to be had, or indeed to walking out to other villages just outside the city. What she didn't like, it would seem, is more the social obligation side of things. So a lot of her time in Bath was spent being made very aware that other people were better off than her family was. And because Bath was a place where the social hierarchy was very obvious and very important, I think she was probably quite often made to feel a little bit uncomfortable. In addition to that, she does seem sometimes to have lost patience rather with the triviality of social events. In one of her letters to her sister, written in 1801, for example, she writes, quote, We are to have a tiny party here tonight. I hate tiny parties. They force one into constant exertion. There's been much speculation in biographies and history writing generally about the romantic side of Jane's life, particularly in Bath. Did she meet anyone? The answer to that would seem to be yes, once or twice she did, but also, of course, we know that she never did marry anybody. And the author of Stories of Bath, Diana White, writes at quite some length about this, speculating that perhaps she didn't have too much patience with many of the sorts of people she met in Bath, and also perhaps that Jane was aware that for her, marriage would possibly interfere with what she really wanted to do, which was be a writer. So this is how Diana White expresses that. Quote, she was also exceptionally choosy, a real hindrance to finding a partner. The average man seeking a wife would not look twice as an independently-minded woman with a sharp tongue, an even sharper eye, and no money. And yes, again, we're going to keep finding these references to money. It was a sad fact that in her position, Jane wouldn't have been seen as a terribly good catch. We know, though, that she'd had a relationship with a man called Tom Lefroy, with whom she did seem to get on very well, and for a short period they seemed to see quite a lot of each other. But it's thought that the fact that neither of them had any money 
was a great impediment to being allowed to marry, and that Tom's family probably hustled him away to look elsewhere, and that came to nothing. There was a Mr Evelyn, who seems to be quite in the background. We don't know too much about him, but we do know that she spent time with him as well. And then, in her middle twenties, we know that she did get a proposal of marriage from one Harris Big Wither, which, in fact, she accepted, only to announce to everybody the following morning that she had changed her mind. Again here, it's Diana White's opinion that possibly Jane was thinking about her writing and decided that really she couldn't afford to marry, with all that that might mean for giving up her independence. Or was it simply that she felt she didn't love him enough? Quote, Was it the woman who wrote, however acerbic the subplots, about love and romance, realising she couldn't marry a man she didn't love, no matter how advantageous? Or was it the fact that Harris Bigwither might object to her writing and publishing hopes? Even a shy, stammering husband, when he holds the purse strings, can be a formidable opponent to freedom. I don't think we'll ever know the answer to that. As to her writing, we know that Jane was writing even as a child. She used to like to write stories for her family, which she would read out to them. And it's said that even her first attempts were well-received, amusing, showing even at that age a grasp for parody and satire, and that her family began to realise that she really might have a natural talent. In fact, her father tried to help find a publisher for her works. Not something many 18th century fathers did, I don't think, for their daughters. And although he didn't manage it, it does show that he was encouraging her. By the time she reached 18, she was beginning to write longer works, and it's thought that her first novel, Lady Susan, was complete by the time she was 20. It was for Susan, a few years later, in 1803, that she got her first offer from a publisher. She sold it to him for £10, although by this stage it was going under the title of Northanger Abbey. In fact, the publisher held on to it, didn't actually put it into print, and so it didn't in the end become the first book of hers actually to be published. But I think she must have been hugely encouraged by the idea that somebody thought they might publish her work, and sure enough she kept on writing, particularly after the return to Hampshire, which was in 1809. She established quite a writing routine, so in amongst all the domestic chores, there would be hours of the day when she would sit at a little table in the sitting room, writing away in what's often described as secretive routines. She wrote on little scraps of paper, and when visitors arrived, it's known that she would hide them under the blotter because she didn't want them to know what she was doing. In 1811, she published Sense and Sensibility at her own expense. And this was well received, so things began to pick up, and she then published three more books in quite quick succession, they being Pride and Prejudice, Mansfield Park, which was published in 1814, and Emma, published in 1815, at which point she began work on Persuasion. But unfortunately, only a year after that, in 1816, began the illness which in the end was going to prove fatal. She even began putting her affairs in order, so she bought Susan back from the publisher, started another novel, Sanditon, which in fact she became too ill to finish, so by the end she was just writing letters and poems. And after she died in 1817, her sister Cassandra and Henry, her brother, got together and made sure that Susan was published under its new title of Northanger Abbey, and Persuasion too made it into print. 
so in total she'd published six works, two of them posthumously, and left her unfinished novel, Sanderton. And in fact, the topic of Bath does turn up in, I think, each of her novels, although much more in a couple of them than the others. Sometimes it's just a matter of passing references, really. So in Pride and Prejudice, for example, when Mr Wickham wants to escape from his unhappy marriage, he goes to Bath to, as Jane Austen writes, waste money he does not have. So a hint of it being somewhere where people are foolish with their money, where it's easy to spend, where perhaps people sometimes got into debt, all of which was true. In Emma, we know that it is to Bath which Mr Elton goes when he is looking for a wife. So again, this quite small, subtle reference to the whole idea of Bath as being some kind of marriage market, a place where, if you wanted a partner, you had a good chance of meeting one. In Sense and Sensibility, it's in Bath that Mr Willoughby seduces Eliza Williams, leaving her pregnant. Almost a passing reference, really, not something which is further developed in the main novel, but absolutely the idea that Bath was somewhere where it was possible to lose your way, even to have your life ruined. But the two main novels in which Bath features are Northanger Abbey, which of course was her first novel, and Persuasion, which was her last. And they were the two which were published posthumously. So let's take Northanger Abbey first. The young Catherine Morland is taken to Bath, again by an older couple who are not her parents, but are doing the family a favour, taking a girl who otherwise wouldn't be able to afford to spend time there, to widen her horizons, to introduce her to society. Catherine is very young, she's very innocent, she's very taken to start with with everything she sees, but she soon begins to realise a little bit more about what's actually going on, and to see through some of the characters that she meets that at first she's very impressed with, but who turn out to be not very nice people at all in the end. Here we get little glimpses of the rather dilatory life that many people who were visiting Bath led. So in chapter 3, for example, Jane Austen writes, quote, Every morning now brought its regular duties. Shops were to be visited, some new part of the town to be looked at, and the pump room to be attended, where they paraded up and down for an hour, looking at everybody and speaking to no one. So there's the sort of time-wasting element, there's the waiting to be noticed, an idea that Catherine and friend were not swooped on immediately by people who thought they would be good to get to know, but were really rather left to their own devices. There's an amusing section a little bit later on, when Catherine meets Henry, whom, spoiler alert, she's going to fall in love with. And their first conversation reveals quite a lot about what the social life in Bath was actually like, what kind of things people would be doing, and also adds an element of irony, because Henry is gently teasing her about the expected way that a young lady should spend her social life when she's in Bath. And Jane Austen signals all this in advance by making the opening conversation go like this. Henry to Catherine, quote, I have hitherto been very remiss, madam, in the proper attentions of a partner here. I have not yet asked you how long you have been in Bath, whether you were ever here before, whether you have been at the upper rooms, the theatre and the concert, and how you like the place altogether. I have been very negligent, but are you now at leisure to satisfy me in these particulars? If you are, I will begin directly. Catherine, rather amused, agrees to questions, and the conversation continues like this. Were you never here before, madam? Never, sir. Indeed. 
Have you yet honoured the upper rooms? Yes, sir, I was there last Monday. Have you been to the theatre? Yes, sir, I was at the play on Tuesday. To the concert? Yes, sir, on Wednesday. And are you altogether pleased with Bath? Yes, sir, I like it very well. Now I must give one smirk, and then we may be rational again. Catherine turned away her head, not knowing whether she might venture to laugh. There's a little paragraph in a later chapter where Jane Austen tells us about the rather desultory way people spend their Sundays. There weren't many entertainments on a Sunday, it being deemed not the thing, and so there wasn't a great deal to do, and most people, in the end, would just go out for a walk. Quote, A fine Sunday in Bath empties every house of its inhabitants, and all the world appears on such an occasion to walk about and tell their acquaintance what a charming day it is. You very much get the idea that maybe Jane herself has been bored on many an occasion by the conversation, or so-called conversation, of the people into whose company she has fallen. And Henry himself allows himself to be really quite dismissive about the city, remarking, quote, For six weeks, I allow, Bath is pleasant enough, but beyond that, it is the most tiresome place in the world. In Northanger Abbey, you're definitely seeing the city through the eyes of someone young, someone very keen to like what she finds, and someone who gradually is learning to be a little wiser. In Jane Austen's last published novel, Persuasion, we get quite a different picture of the city of Bath. It's set in Bath after the Napoleonic Wars, and the people there seem to have changed a bit. It's less a social hub than a marriage market, and becoming a bit more a place for the elderly, the retired colonels and not very well to come and spend their time. In this story, we have Sir Walter Elliot, who's in financial difficulties of his own making, and is forced to rent out his home in the country, Kellynch Hall, in order to help pay for its upkeep, and while that's going on, he removes to Bath. And in part two of the book, Anne, the heroine, is invited to Bath to spend a few weeks with Sir Walter and his wife. It's the usual Bath scene, Visits are made, guests are received, a little shopping is done, a series of entertainments are offered. Here, for example, is one of the characters in Milsom Street, still the city's main shopping street. Quote, in walking up Milsom Street, Anne Elliot had the good fortune to meet with the Admiral. He was standing by himself at a print shop window, with his hands behind him, in earnest contemplation of a print. So you have both a reference to the city's most fashionable shopping street and quite a hint that many of the people in Bath were spending time mooching about up and down it without all that much to do really, sort of marking time. There's a definite sense that many of these older people have come to Bath on account of their health, as illustrated in this little exchange from some evening event. And what, pray, brings the Crofts to Bath? Oh, they come on the Admiral's account. He is thought to be gouty. So there's the whole idea about coming to Bath to bathe in the waters, to drink the water. And there are lots of moments in the book where the social hierarchy is made very clear. We know from Jane's own life that she would have felt on many occasions that she was among people who were better off, certainly, than she was, probably thought themselves more important. But people like that felt that they could be a bit dismissive of people like herself. And I like to think she got her revenge a bit by writing about it. So here she is, for example, 
describing the appearance of Lady Russell at an evening event, Lady Russell being rich and important and very aware of this fact. Quote, Upon Lady Russell's appearance soon afterwards, the whole party was collected, and all that remained was to marshal themselves and proceed into the concert room, and be of all the consequence in their power, draw as many eyes, excite as many whispers, and disturb as many people as they could. So a hint that the party can't get started until the most important person is there, and that once she is there, everybody else has to rush along behind. Sometimes it's spelt out much more explicitly. So Anne's cousin, Mr Elliot, tries to persuade her to get to know Lady Dalrymple, because Lady Dalrymple is rich and important, and her cousin feels that Anne should, quote, enjoy all the advantages of the connection as far as possible. And he goes on to explain very patiently, as if Anne doesn't understand these things, that because Lady Dalrymple moves in the first set-in bath, if Anne can form a connection with her, then that will be useful in, quote, fixing your family in that degree of consideration which we must all hope for. Anne replies quite directly, explaining that she doesn't like this sort of thing, and showing that she perfectly understands what Lady Dalrymple probably thinks of her. Quote, I confess it does vex me that we should be so solicitous to have the relationship acknowledged, which we may be very sure is a matter of perfect indifference to them. So in the round then, from both Northanger Abbey and from Persuasion, very much a picture of Bath as it was, both the reality of what life was actually like there, and hints at all the complexities of the social hierarchy and what it was like to try to navigate them. So, somewhere you can visit in Bath, if you want to know a lot more about Jane Austen, is the Jane Austen Centre, which is in a townhouse in Gay Street, a place where you can find lots of exhibits about Jane's life in Bath, about the life of the day generally. There's a waxwork of Jane, there are costumed guides who will tell you anecdotes. If you take any little people with you, they get the chance to dress up. They, or indeed you, if it's your thing, can have a go at for example, learning some Regency parlour games or trying out writing with a quill and ink. So it's quite a good way to just try and think yourself back into the 18th century. It comes complete with a Regency tea room. So, a fun morning or afternoon out. What's actually even better, I think, is their website, which is absolutely chock full of all kinds of interesting things. About Jane, about her books, and about life in general in Bath in her period. So the website is janeaustin, all one word, .co.uk and I do absolutely recommend it. In addition to the visitor information that you might want if you're planning to go, do have a browse at all the things that are on there. So for example, there's a whole host of articles written by interested parties, Jane Austen scholars, for example. Just as a flavour, there's one called Jane Austen's Royal Readers by Elizabeth Jane Timms in which she explains that the Prince Regent, so the George who was later to be George IV, was a Jane Austen fan, and actually put some pressure on her to dedicate her book Emma to him. The way the author tells it, it wasn't exactly in order. It was more that he let it be known that Jane would be, quote, at liberty to dedicate any future work to the Prince. This Jane dutifully did, although I think there is some dispute as to whether she was very keen to do it. We know too that he had copies of her other books. He bought Sense and Sensibility. He apparently bought two copies of Pride and Prejudice 
bound in calfskin with gilt edges, no less, and he also owned Mansfield Park and Northanger Abbey. Later on in the essay we discover that Queen Victoria was also a Jane Austen fan, that Prince Albert used to read aloud to her from Pride and Prejudice, or from Northanger Abbey. And that's just one of a whole series of articles. There's also a whole series of quizzes with titles such as Love and Hate in Jane Austen's novels, or Manners and Misunderstandings, and a whole series called Puzzling Over, so puzzling over each of the novels, puzzling over Emma, puzzling over Sense and Sensibility. There's a wonderful section called Regency Recipes, so you get, for example, Cassandra Austen's Baked Custard Recipe. So there's a little extract from Emma, in which custard or custard tart is mentioned, and then the recipe. There's a section on Regency Customs and Manners, where, among the many, many things explained, there is, for example, a description of the Georgian breakfast. And as breakfast turns up quite a lot in the various novels, and seems to be a reference to something other than what we today usually mean by breakfast, it's actually very handy to read. So again, there's an extract from the novel at which breakfast is served at Northanger Abbey, and then there's some biographical detail explaining that breakfast was eaten later in the morning than we would normally think of it, and that people often did other things first, running errands, for example, or in Jane's case, music practice. We learn too that Jane was often the person who prepared breakfast for her family, and that it consisted usually of pound cake, toast, tea, and occasionally cocoa. Perhaps the most fascinating article on there describes a story that you might see referred to in articles about Jane, and which actually was the biggest scandal to envelop her family. There's loads of riveting detail, which I advise you to have a look at if you're interested. But to summarise, in August 1799, so two years after Jane had stayed with the Lee Parrots, Mrs Lee Parrot, her aunt, went shopping at the Draper's and bought some black lace. But when she left the shop, the owner came running after her and insisted on opening her parcels and packages accusing her of theft. So when the parcels were opened, indeed, a card of white lace was found inside, worth 20 shillings, or a pound in today's money, and Jane's aunt was accused of shoplifting. While she awaited the trial, which actually took eight months, she was forced to live with the judge in his house, having been deemed a little bit too well off to be sent to jail, which is what normally would have happened. And frighteningly, the article points out that at this period... The punishment for stealing anything worth more than five shillings, so the lace was definitely in that category, was either hanging or deportation to Australia for 14 years. So it was absolutely the opposite of a trivial event. To cut a long story short, when the trial took place, it took the jury only 15 minutes to return a not guilty verdict, and so the matter was deemed closed. But in fact, historians have been debating ever since whether there was any truth in the allegation Some people, most people probably, argue that she probably was innocent. It's known that the shopkeeper went straight to the magistrate and kept demanding that she should be arrested. But there are others who think there might be something in it. It's known, for example, that one of the employees in the shop testified on oath that actually they were sure to have seen Mrs Lee Perrett stealing the lace. And it's known that Mr Lee Perrett paid some witnesses to come and testify that his wife was of good character So that sounds slightly dubious, although it could just be the actions of a desperate man, perhaps. Anyway, there's a whole host of fascinating detail in this article, which takes as its source material something called, quote, 
the grand larceny being the trial of Jane Lee Perrett, aunt of Jane Austen. So, if you want to delve into the history of Jane's relatives, or indeed into what life was like in the 18th century, and find a wealth of detail that you can lose yourself in, then I really do absolutely recommend this website. So just to repeat the address again, janeaustin, all one word, .co.uk. So a visit to the Jane Austen Centre is definitely one of the Jane Austen things to do in Bath. As you can imagine, there is no shortage of opportunity to go on a Jane Austen walk as well. So there are guides who will offer to take you. You can book those at the tourists' information And also there is a Jane Austen walk available as a map and audio download from the Tourist Information website. Or you could just take yourself on your own sort of little Jane Austen wander. Perhaps start at the pump room, picture Catherine and Isabella Thorpe from Northanger Abbey on their first morning there, trying very hard, well in Isabella's case at least, to catch the attention of some attractive young men. And from the pump room you could wend your way then up to Queen Square knowing that Jane Austen stayed there when she came to Bath. Maybe walk along the gravel walk, where we know that Anne and Captain Wentworth had their heart-to-heart at the end of Persuasion. Stop off for a look at the Crescent and the Circus and think about all the films that have been shot there. Find your way past the Assembly Rooms, again the scene of so many scenes from the novels and from Jane's own life. And then come back down Milsom Street, shopping street today as it was in Jane Austen's time, You need to look past the windows of the department store and waterstones and whatnot at the buildings and imagine what we know to have been the case, which was that this was a street full of fashionable shops selling clothes and boots and ribbon and all the things that ladies and gentlemen who had come to town from the country for a few weeks were going to need to buy if they were going to keep up appearances. And from the bottom of Milsom Street then, it's a quick hop back to the pump room. That would certainly be a quick version of the walk, although it has to be said there are many, many other places in Bath connected with Jane Austen, so if you want to know the detail, you probably are well advised to find one of the guides to take you. Okay, so that's that then for today, the end of Jane Austen's Bath. In next week's episode, I'm going to move on to some other museums and art galleries which we haven't visited yet. Though we've been to a number that fitted in with the context of the episodes, the Roman Baths in episode two, for example, and the Jane Austen Centre today. But there are two main art galleries that I would like to cover, both of which have material in them on Bath itself, as well as lots of other things. And there are also two or three other museums which it would be a pity to miss, but which don't fit so neatly into the episodes I've planned. So I'm going to put them all together and take you on a little tour and tell you what to expect if you visit any of them. So for the moment then, let's bid farewell to Jane Austen and her real-life family who lived in Bath, and her characters who also lived in Bath. At least many of them did. Thank you very much for listening, and goodbye. <laughs>